Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Today on Not Sam Wrestling, we talk about the loss of a legend. We analyze the underground. Pat McAfee is a wrestler and more. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Here we go, guys. Happy Monday, and welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Why don't we do it, huh? Why don't we start another week right? I think it's only fair. So much to talk about this week, too. Welcome to the show. Um, And something, you know, I'm a fan of things not being completely on the nose all the time. Not everything needs to be spelled out. Not everything needs to be announced. When we kind of made the change on this podcast from a weekly interview show to a weekly analysis show that sometimes had some interviews on it, I had my reasons for doing it. But at no point did I ever want to come and announce, hey, it's a new era and this is what we'll be doing. I don't believe in that stuff. You, I, I believe in a, a slow change, an evolution. And if the people come with you, the people come with you. If people are into it, people are into it. But that's that's a positive about what we've been seeing in WWE in the last really seven days or so. Because if you look at throughout all three brands, the shows are clearly getting shaken up. The brand is clearly getting shaken up. But for the first time in a while, it didn't start with one of the McMahons coming out and making an announcement. It's time to shake things up. Because there is nothing that will guarantee that nothing is going to get shaken up and that everything will be business as usual. Like one of the McMahons coming on TV and saying, we're going to shake things up. You know? whether it's a draft announcement that within six months ends up going nowhere, whether it's, you know, everybody coming out on TV and announcing, we're going to start listening to the fans. And it's like just the nonspecific stuff where they're like, well, we got to say something that never goes anywhere. That's always an eye roll for me because I know it's not going anywhere. Because if you had a plan, you would just start enacting the plan. The only time you hear somebody announce that they have a plan It's when they're not ready to enact the plan. So they needed, all right, well, the first week we can buy some time by just announcing that there is a plan. So then at least people won't keep asking us what the plan is because we will have announced that there is a plan. Then we can figure out how to actually enact it. You know, like on the Not Sam Show Patreon page, on uh, Thursday, I want to say, I shook up the tears a little bit and clarified what all the Patreon rewards were for. 
it wasn't like some big announcement. Hey, it's time to revolutionize. It's time to shake things up. It's just like, hey, we've, we have kind of been doing things this way, but now let's make it official. And it's like, okay, yeah. I feel like this is what I signed up for. I feel like we're moving in the right direction. So that's why I mean, I kind of like that clearly the WWE is trying new things without having to make the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are trying new things. But before we get to the new things that the WWE is trying, a uh, couple of uh, historical notes. And when I say historical notes, I just mean conversations to have about uh, incidents in the past. History, if you will. First and foremost, we do need to send a big RIP, rest in peace, to Kamala, the Ugandan giant, the Ugandan headhunter, depending on your era. Now, clearly, uh, the character, by today's standards, might not be the most sensitive thing of all time, but Kamala existed at a time when bad guy wrestlers were supposed to be scary. When you believed... There was, even if you knew what you were seeing wasn't completely on the up and up, you didn't quite knew, know how it worked. And I can't speak to adults watching Kamala because I was never an adult. I mean, I guess I was an adult watching Kamala when I'd go back and watch the tapes. But aside from the random appearance here and there on our, you know, Raw reunion type show, Kamala really existed when I was a kid. Now, Kamala was a big time heel across the territories, world-class championship wrestling, the like. He went to WWE in the late 80s and was a main event bad guy. I mean, he he, he was a rival of Hulk Hogan. He never had a, I don't, he never had a pay-per-view match with Hulk Hogan. But this was an era when not every big match ended up on a pay-per-view. I mean, the idea that every big match ended up on a pay-per-view really didn't kick in until sometime in the 90s. Because, I mean, think about it. Hogan Flair was never on a pay-per-view. Undertaker, Ultimate Warrior was never on a pay-per-view. Papa Shango, Ultimate Warrior, was never on a pay-per-view. Maybe it was just the Ultimate Warrior. Regardless, Kamala had a, a pretty significant, I would say, run with Hulk Hogan throughout live events in the late 80s. He was one of the early monsters that were brought in uh, that Hulk Hogan was going to have to stop the unstoppable. Now, I've seen the tapes. It's available on the network. I'm familiar with it. That was not the... I was too young. In the late 80s, I might have been familiar with what was on TV, the big, big names that were on TV. But if it didn't have a toy... I guess Kamala had a toy back then. But you know what I'm saying. I, I, I just... I wouldn't have been familiar enough with Kamala. He disappeared for a while. And then he came back to the WWE in 1992. And that is the Kamala that I remember most. Uh, he ended up staying there until like 94. I think he did about two years and he had the baby face turn and everything. But Kamala's probably most significant run in WWE in that era was his run with The Undertaker. Uh, the Undertaker by 1992 had kind of taken the lead as the baby face that would go up again. Monsters would be brought in for The Undertaker to have to try to stop. Uh, and Kamala was one of these monsters. Um, and by then, he was not the Ugandan headhunter anymore. He was the Ugandan giant. Uh, and he came to the ring with uh, Kimchi and with Dr. 
Harvey Whippleman. I give to you Kamala. And he would come out and he'd be pounding his belly. Oh. He'd have the mask on and everything. Lots of very cool Kamala action figures have been made because of that look. Um, the current one, the last one that Mattel made is probably my favorite. But you've got the one from Mattel. You got the Jax Classic Superstars. You got the Figures Inc. Legends of the Ring. You got the Hasbro. You got the LJN. I would probably go Mattel, Hasbro, LJN, Legends of the Ring, Jax Classic, I think, in terms of Kamala figures. Uh, but he was brought in. He faced Undertaker at SummerSlam 1992 in Wembley Stadium. And I remember at the time, I would have been seven, eight, seven or eight years old, which means my brother would have been five, something like that. And I remember telling him because, you know, Kamala was a cannibal at the time. And I remember telling my brother, hey, man, just so you know, you know Kamala eats kids, right? He go, yeah, no, I heard, I heard, I heard he eats kids. That's what I, that's what they've been, we've been talking about that on the playground. Yeah, I do know that. And I'm like, well, look, we got these tickets to SummerSlam. They are floor seats, okay? It's not too far from the ring. I have been informed that Kamala has not eaten in weeks and is starving. So just so you know. And I remember my brother being terrified that Kamala was literally going to consume him before, like, like he would be in his match with The Undertaker and he'd get The Undertaker down, leave the ring area, hop the guardrail, and consume my brother, eat him alive. Which I did not quell his fears, but to be honest, I was only making my brother so scared of Kamala to try to work through my own fear. Even at that age, seven, eight years old, I was terrified of Kamala. I was scared of the Ugandan giant. Kamala was a scary, scary bad guy. Him and Papa Shango both scared me very, very much. I believed him. I believed Kamala. I believed the presentation. And when you go back and watch Kamala matches, you know, he didn't have the most varied move set in the world. You know, the bonk pound on the head, the bad chop. But there were a couple of things he did. First of all, his character work was, I mean, to the moon good. Fabulous. Secondly, he had a hell of a leapfrog. He could really get some air on that leapfrog. The leapfrog was one of the most impressive things that Kamala did. He could also get that foot up in the air. Hitting you with that sidekick, he could really get some air on that foot. So there were some things that Kamala did that were more athletic than I think people remember Kamala doing. And then, of course, the pinning the man while he was belly down and the kimchi and Harvey Whippleman, no, turn him over, turn him over, turn him over. Of course, The Undertaker beat him at SummerSlam 92, and then that rivalry would continue to Survivor Series 1992 and the first ever casket match, which, you know, the promos leading to the Survivor Series were Paul Bearer and The Undertaker, and they were building the casket, and they were doing it just right, and then they brought the casket to the ring, and it had the two stars and the moon on the top of the casket that looked just like Kamala's torso, and... It was great because they did this gimmick where it was the exact same thing when Andre the Giant fought Jake the Snake Roberts. They did this thing, I think at WrestleMania 5. Yeah, I think it was 5. 
they did this thing where uh, Andre was afraid of snakes. That's how they got around the fact that Andre was so much bigger than Jake. He's afraid of snakes, and Jake has a snake. So Kamala, as it turns out, deathly afraid of caskets. Who knew? I didn't. But Kamala is afraid of caskets. And so anytime he got near that casket, it was... They had to get away from it. So Undertaker obviously ends up beating him. Then uh, beginning of 93, Kamala goes babyface, becomes a good guy. Um, he would end up, he, had a, he was supposed to have a match at WrestleMania 9 against Bam Bam Bigelow, who was a heel at the time. Uh, but that didn't happen. I think they ended up making that a dark match or something like that. I think that match did end up happening on an episode of Primetime Wrestling, though. And then not too long after that, he left WWE again. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody wanted to see a babyface Kamala, to tell you the truth. He was he replaced Kim Chi and Harvey Whippleman with the Doctor of Style, Slick, who is now the Reverend Slick. And the Reverend Slick was there to teach Kamala, you are a man, Kamala, you are a man, not a beast. But it was what it was. Kamala ended up leaving. Then he popped up again in WCW. Let's give Kamala his props. Kamala was in the Dungeon of Doom and the Committee to End Hulkamania or whatever it was called. It was Kamala, the Shark, the Zodiac, a.k.a. Brutus Beefcake, the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan, the guy who was sat on the throne, who had all the blade job scars on his forehead. Dungeon of Doom was not to be messed with. I mean, Hogan destroyed him, but still. They were not to be messed with. I still wish Mattel would put out a big Dungeon of Doom box set. I am, I kind of am thinking that I need to get another Kamala figure from Mattel so I can have one Kamala on display with the WWE guys and then another Kamala on display next to the shark so I can start building that Dungeon of Doom because they have the rights to Kamala. They have the rights to Bruce Beefcake. So theoretically, they could make a Zodiac. So I, I mean, I would love for there to be a Dungeon of Doom grouping of, uh, of Mattel figures. But that was kind of it. After that, uh, Kamala would do a ton of indie shows, a ton of autograph signings. He'd pop up on WWE reunion stuff here and there. One of the earlier uh, independent locker rooms I was in, I remember tripping out because I was thinking about how scared I was of Kamala as a kid. And now I see this guy, and he's back there, and he's got his loincloth on, but he's wearing a shirt. He's got all his paint on, but he's taken off his Tevas. And I was like, Kamala wears Tevas? Trip me out, ma'am. But rest in peace to Kamala. Certainly a huge symbol of an era. I think anybody that watched wrestling at the time and anybody who's into, like, over-the-top wrestling characters will always, always, always remember Kamala. And it's always good to know, like, R.I.P. Kamala trending on Twitter, just letting, you know, you hope on some level that when Kamala passed, he realized the impact that he had had on wrestling fans in general and, you know, how much he'd be remembered. I know WWE has already put out a, a thing from the website, so I will ima I would imagine on Raw they would have some kind of graphic. Um, but I guess we'll see, right? We'll see. The other historical contact uh, uh, conversation I wanted to have was WWE has a show on the network now called Timeline. It's amazing, by the way, how the WWE network crew has found 150,000 different ways to package a documentary. It's just a nut. Like, I, I swear to God, I don't know. Between 20, there's one called 24, 
and there's another call 365. I guess 24, but there's 24, there's 365, and then there's day of. I'm assuming 24 is not 24 hours, but it's a shorter period of time where theoretically they're followed around almost 24 hours. Day of is that day only. It's a 24-hour period. 365 is obviously following a person over the course of a year. Then they have untold. Now they have timeline. Uh, And, I mean, so many other packages of documentaries, which I love. I mean, if it means more documentaries, I say do all of them. Keep packaging them. But timeline uh, takes... One, I would imagine it's one rivalry, but I guess it theoretically could be one character and just kind of goes over a period of time. Like this would only work for long form stuff, but it tells kind of the complete story. And the timeline uh, show that they uploaded to the network yesterday that is the premiere is Daniel Bryan versus The Miz. Uh, I believe one of the more underrated rivalries of the modern era, uh, I I think that on every level it's pretty much the perfect rivalry just because the Miz and Daniel Bryan run so many parallels but at the same time are so polar opposites theoretically have the same dream but view that dream completely differently from each other um you know the, the idea and it really does begin i think i mean really it begins even before that original NXT season on the Sci-Fi Network. Really, it begins before that because even before Daniel Bryan got to WWE, Daniel Bryan was the symbol. Daniel Bryan was the best wrestler in the world who was not in WWE, and one could argue just the best wrestler in the world. I mean, if you never saw Daniel Bryan in Ring of Honor, I saw him live many times. I saw him live in a match with Nigel McGuinness, and it was just like you knew Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson. It was something totally different. One of my I bring up Mattel figures again. One of my favorite things Mattel ever did was put out an American Dragon Daniel Bryan figure because it's just it's just everything about that era is amazing to me. But as good as he was, he also symbolized everything WWE wasn't. He wasn't a Hollywood guy. He wasn't a giant. He was just an athletic wrestler. You know, he wasn't tanned. He wasn't made of granite. He wasn't six foot five. He didn't have an over-the-top personality. He didn't have a gimmick. He was just Brian Danielson at the time, Daniel Bryan eventually. And so I think having that juxtaposed with The Miz, who in terms of being a wrestler, not a superstar, not a sports entertainer, but just a wrestler, couldn't touch Daniel Bryan. But in terms of being a superstar, was a way above where Daniel Bryan was at. So you've got Daniel Bryan representing wrestling and The Miz representing sports entertainment right at the same time. Daniel Bryan gets signed to WWE. He ends up on the NXT reality show on Sci-Fi, which is one of the greatest cringe watches you could have on the WWE network. And he, I remember when The Miz was announced as Daniel Bryan's pro, it was like an insult to those of us that had watched Daniel Bryan run his run his his career through the independents. Going like, if anything, Daniel Bryan should be coaching the Miz, not the other way around. And WWE knew what they were doing. 
And that's where the story begins and the story gets told all the way through. But the reason that I bring it up is because I, I, I literally found myself getting upset watching it because of an opportunity that the WWE completely squandered. I think one of the reasons why we're looking at WWE right now and seeing so much stuff get thrown at the wall is not just because of the weird time that we're in. That's a big part of it. The quarantine and COVID is a huge part of it. I think the real reason is because WWE went a long time without kind of building stars that came out of nowhere. All the stars that were built, it's like Roman Reigns, you saw that one coming from a thousand yards away. Even Seth Rollins, when Roman didn't work, it was like, yeah, well, I guess Seth Rollins is clearly the next guy, right? And it's like all this stuff that it's just not a surprise. You know, it's just not, you look at it, it's like, okay, John Cena had the longest run ever. And then, yeah, well, clearly they're doing something with Roman Reigns. Yeah, well, clearly now they're going to do something with Seth. Yeah, and it's like no, no giant stars are just forming. And it doesn't feel like, like Becky Lynch. The Becky Lynch thing should have happened with so many more. That's how every star should be built. Hulk Hogan should be an anomaly. Hulk Hogan ruined it for everybody. He should be an anomaly. Vince McMahon had a vision for Hulk Hogan, and it worked hook, line, and sinker. But it's literally, that has literally never worked for anybody else. Ever. Everybody else that it's really worked for, except maybe John Cena. John Cena, okay. It's worked for nobody else except John Cena. Hulk Hogan and John Cena are the complete anomalies. I mean, think about it. Bret Hart was having, he was literally WWE's last resort. And even as champion, he was treated as WWE's last resort. Bret Hart's legacy is due to Bret Hart, not due to being pushed, not due to a position that he was in. Shawn Michaels was never supposed to be, you know, main event good guy, Shawn Michaels. He left WWE with no choice. The fans left WWE with no choice. They went with Shawn Michaels. Stone Cold was brought in to be a good hand. The Rock was supposed to be Rocky Maivia. None of these guys that ended up being the biggest stars ever were supposed to be the biggest stars ever other than Hogan and John Cena. So we're watching this chain go through and it's like, well, yeah, Roman Reigns is going to be the next guy. No, he's not. Seth Rollins is going to be the next guy. No, he's not. Okay, well, smart guy, who do you think it should be? And the answer is, I think that you have to be really focused on watching the momentum and seeing what really, really works and seeing what might surprise you and changing course and just going with it. Like I've been saying, put the title on Baron Corbin. Hell, I don't think it's a bad idea to go and have Otis cash in and put the title on Otis. Because here's something that I, there's two things watching this timeline. Number one, the money in the bank cash-ins. When they showed the Miz's cash-in and when they showed Daniel Bryan's cash-in, it was like, oh my God, is the Miz about to be WWE champion? And you look at Angry Miz Girl and it's like, no effing way. And when Daniel Bryan cashed in, you're going, oh, how could Daniel Bryan be the champion of the world? No freaking way. And that's how it went with CM Punk. That's how it's gone for, that's how it went with Dolph Ziggler. 
That's how it went with a lot of people that cashed in. But now, the unpredictability of the money in the bank has gone away completely. The money in the bank does not have half the spirit that it used to. Because Brock Lesnar won it, and Braun Strowman won it, and guys keep losing it. The person who wins the Money in the Bank ladder match, you should look at them. It should be Otis. Otis is perfect. The person who wins the Money in the Bank ladder match should be a person who you look at going like, he is not going to be the champion. And then he should win the title. Period. He's got to. That's the way that you keep this an interesting prize. I mean, Brock Lesnar winning the Money in the Bank, it was like an unpredictable moment at the time. But the briefcase, if used correctly, can be this storyline that lasts a year or as long as you want it to last. And then at the whatever moment you want, whatever, whenever you want to pull the trigger, it can be this like, oh, holy, you know what moment. And it could be that for Otis. It needs to be that for Otis, quite frankly. Um, I mean, if I'm over there, I'm putting the title either on Baron Corbin or on Otis literally Friday night. I'm doing it, and I'm doing it on television, not on pay-per-view. We're going to SummerSlam with a new champion, period. End of story, if I'm there right now. But that's besides the point. So the money in the bank stuck out of me, but what, and that, got, that did get me upset. But what got me really upset was re-watching the Talking Smack promo between The Miz and Daniel Bryan. That was a career-making promo for The Miz. And this is deep into The Miz's career. Look, I talked about how great The Miz cash-in was, and The Miz's cash-in was great. But that title reign was terrible. He had a, a pay-per-view title defense against Jerry the King Lawler. And then he, I guess, technically retained in a WrestleMania main event that was all about The Rock. And had nothing to do with John Cena or The Miz. And then he lost it right after that. So, I mean, yeah, it was a terrible title reign. And he probably wasn't ready for it anyway at the time. But you know when he was ready for it? In 2017, 2018. In 2017, The Miz was definitely the best heel in the WWE. And might have been the best wrestler in the WWE. The Miz was the best in 2017. Nobody was better. He was at his absolute peak. And they never put the title on him. And then they just let him get lost in the shuffle. They did the Daniel Bryan thing with him. And then after that, they let him get lost in the shuffle. He either wouldn't be on TV or the New Day would be messing with him or that was it. Like, it's so frustrating to see hard work pay off Something works so successfully, and then it just gets squandered. And I'm not never ready to say that until it actually happens. Like, I'm not the type that's ever going to be like, oh, yeah, well, The Miz is hot now, but they're just going to blow it. They're going to blow it anyway. Like, because that's a dumb attitude to have. That's a pessimistic attitude to have, and there's no reason to watch the show if that's the attitude you're going to have. If you have that attitude, you're probably not succeeding in life. Because it probably applies to more than just WWE. That's probably how you look at a lot of stuff. You're probably a negative person. And negative people don't win. But when you see that it has happened, it's important to call it out. And The Miz 
It, they blew it with The Miz. Pardon the interruption, but ladies, gentlemen, if you want more podcasts and less interruptions, then might I suggest becoming a shill at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. Become a Not Sam shill and you will get this podcast every single week early and ad-free. You'll also get an additional podcast every single Thursday. You'll get Thursday, Not Sam Thursday, completely ad-free, exclusively at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling, and access to our Discord room where Not Sam shills are talking about wrestling 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you'll get it all for less than $1 a week. You can sign up right now and get all of that for less than a dollar a week. We've also got uh, videos first on the Patreon page. You can watch everything we record, this podcast and every other podcast that we record from the Not Sam Studio live and interactively at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. We do Q&As every single week. We have Zoom meetings where I brainstorm the podcast before the show with select shills at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. We have Zoom parties before pay-per-views if you're a Patreon at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling and a whole lot more. It's a great community that if you like this podcast, you might want to be a part of. Sign up today. It starts at less than a dollar a week. Patreon.com slash notsamwrestling become a Not Sam show. Because I was looking at him and I went, oh yeah. When I looked at The Miz and Maurice and I remembered, I forgot. When The Miz added Maurice, it just went to a whole nother level. I forgot about that. And then The Miz Taraj, Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel. And I was like, oh man, I forgot how great The Miz Taraj was. The Miz Taraj was so good that they ended up being successful. They won the tag titles as the B team. I was doing a, a pay-per-view after show and they slid down the table that I was sitting at. I remember the B team was a big act for a second. And that was because the Miz Taraj was so over, but that's because the Miz was so hot. That Miz promo on Talking Smack should be in the Austin 316 promo conversation. But the Austin 316 promo conversation doesn't happen unless Stone Cold Steve Austin becomes the hottest wrestler in the territory. If Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't enter the main event scene and you can tie it all back to that promo, that promo is not as important as you thought it was. It doesn't just stand alone. It's where it ties in to what happened to Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'm not saying The Miz should have been as big as Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm not saying The Miz would have been the biggest superstar of all time. But what I am saying is, you could have had an amazingly interesting title scene, and it would have been a great run, you know? I mean, AJ Styles was a great champion. He had some great matches. He had a great match with John Cena. You know, he had, he had, he had, he had, he had moments. But... You don't look at that reign as, as defining. The Miz having a WWE championship title reign in 2017 would have changed everything. It wouldn't have just changed everything for The Miz. It would have changed everything, period. Because you would have had this strong heel champion in The Miz. 
And eventually, either you'd have to turn him babyface, which is probably not a great idea. He doesn't do babyface well. Or, because that's, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, now I'm remembering, The Miz is the Intercontinental Champion on SmackDown. Just through the roof. He gets drafted to Raw, which I think is just the dumbest thing ever. And then not too long after that, he becomes a babyface, and he loses every match. You remember it was Royal. I remember because I was covering it on the pre-show, Royal Rumble 2019. He was back on SmackDown. He won the SmackDown Tag Team Championships with Shane McMahon. After that, they lost the tag title, and he lost every match after that. They turned him babyface. And he lost all of his matches. You have this guy who after a decade in WWE of nobody taking seriously. This is a guy who got thrown out of the locker room. This is a guy who once told me a story that he got thrown out of the locker room to the extent that he had to go and use the bathroom in the arena and in his gear pee next to a fan because he wasn't welcome backstage. He wore those ridiculous shorts. He had a chick magnet t-shirt. He was a joke. He had a disastrous WWE championship title run. Somehow, he's able to just keep working and just keep working and just keep working and put the work in. And he finally reaches that pinnacle. And he cuts one of the best promos of the decade. I mean, I, I, Pipe Bomb and Miz on Talking Smack are probably the best promos of the 2010s. And then he gets drafted back and forth. He never gets the WWE Championship. And he turns babyface and loses every match. And it's like, come on. How? How does that even happen? So... It was a great special, but it really annoyed me about how much everything got blown on The Miz. And, you know, you want to say you could fix it now, but could you? I mean, I think The Miz is still capable of it, but I think he shouldn't be partnering with Morrison. I think you'd have to bring Maurice back, and you'd have to make him a heel again, but... You had it, man. You had it. And it escaped. There's nothing that bothers me more than missed opportunities. I mean, it haunts me. It haunts me. So speaking of haunted and speaking of SmackDown, before we get into, I have notes that I want to make on every show this week. And we'll probably go, yeah, we'll go SmackDown NXT Raw. So... I mean, I guess we got an update on the haunting of Alexa Bliss, but not really. And this is why I, I, I'm I'm saying I wish the title was not on Braun Strowman right now. Because I am so interested in what is going on between Bray Wyatt and Braun Strowman. I mean, <laughs> bite my tongue. I am so interested in what is going on between Bray Wyatt and Alexa Bliss. So interested. 
I think I I I I I think the Bray Wyatt and Alexa Bliss stuff has the opportunity to be some groundbreaking material. I think it could be just what Alexa Bliss needs. I think it could take the fiend to another level. But when we didn't really get any answers, we just had that interaction where the fiend, like Alexa Bliss showed affection for the fiend and the fiend showed mercy for Alexa Bliss. And you're like, what's going on here? And then Braun Strowman comes on and cuts this promo that almost is like a non sequitur. Like he's like, I don't care about Alexa Bliss. And I'm like, okay, well, I think the fiend does, but all right, I guess that's fine. And well, yeah, like Braun Strowman's going to be the monster. And I'm like, okay, that could be interesting. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll watch Braun Strowman as a monster fight Bray Wyatt as a fiend. Like, okay, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm not, not going to watch it, but I am sitting here and say, I'm so much more interested in Bray Wyatt and Alexa Bliss than I am in Bray Wyatt versus Braun Strowman. So much more interested. You know, I almost, I, I just want the Bray, the, the Braun Strowman stuff to just happen. And let's see what's going on between the fiend and Alexa Bliss. Let's get to the bottom of this, you know? That's where I think way more of the energy should be focused. And that's what I talk about when you realize you've got something. I mean, I think WWE needs to rewatch these shows. And even if the plan was, like, they, I, I think they need to watch after the show airs. I'm sure they don't have time. I'm sure they're super busy. But, like, I, I think that even if the plan is, well, we're going to have Alexa Bliss play this role, but it's really going to be about Braun Strowman versus Bray Wyatt. I think you have to watch the way that episode of SmackDown ended last week. You know, we you, when when the confrontation first happened between The Fiend and Alexa Bliss. And then kind of be aware of the conversations that are happening about it. Maybe listen to my podcast. I got all the good ideas. Scoops Roberts over here. And then go, oh, okay. Maybe we've stumbled onto something that's a lot more interesting than Braun Strowman and Bray Wyatt. Well, what do we do with Braun Strowman and Bray Wyatt then? Well, just have Otis beat Braun Strowman real quick. What the hell happened? I don't know. Have Otis beat Braun Strowman. Well, who's going to fight Otis after that then? I don't know. Graham Metalik, whoever. We'll figure it out. Otis's champion is going to be compelling on its own. Alexa Bliss and The Fiend are compelling on their own. Maybe Braun Strowman joins The Fiend after that. You know, you can keep Braun Strowman there. I don't dislike Braun Strowman. I'm just way more interested in Alexa Bliss versus The Fiend. So hopefully that's the story that continues to get told as we go and they don't just kind of like blow it off, you know? Um, but I think the big talking point on SmackDown this week was Retribution. Retribution, who coming off of Raw, of course, uh, it was first announced on Twitter on Monday that a new faction is coming to Monday Night Raw. Then the lights flickered. Then we saw a box get tipped over and Charlie Caruso was there to report on it. And then we saw people dressed up like Tazawa's ninjas that were not Tazawa's ninjas throwing uh, Molotov cocktails at the generator outside of the performance center. And people were like, what happened to the faction? I was like, that's the faction. They're throwing fire at the generator. They're lighting the generator on fire. That's what the faction did. What's the faction's name? I was like, I don't know. And then WWE's Twitter was like, I do. It's Retribution. I was like, oh, okay, it's Retribution. That's your, there's your faction. 
And yes, it was very weird that we were getting a lot more information about the faction from Twitter than we did on TV. Um, but still, it was one of those things where I guess we'll just keep watching. We'll just keep watching and the story will unfold. And it has. I mean, that's that that's shown to be true. Because on SmackDown, the lights flickered and it was like, uh-oh. And this was a positive. Because realistically, I was like, well, if it's retribution... And they're going so far as rule breakers that they will set the generator on fire and cheer about it. Why would they adhere to the brand extension rules? They're literally lighting the building on fire, something I've threatened to do many times in frustration. Not when I'm actually in the building. I don't want to scare anybody. But here on this podcast, I mean, I went through a whole era where I was threatening to light things on fire. But I go, okay, all right. Why would they adhere to the brand rules, the brand extension rules, if they're lighting things on fire? And they didn't. The lights flickered on SmackDown, and then they showed up. They ran out of the back. They came through where the crowd would be, and Michael Cole said, oh, my God, is that retribution? And Michael Cole, I mean, who knew this guy could run as fast as he could run? I'll tell you this. Michael Cole's fight-or-flight instincts— it's not an or anymore. We know exactly. Michael Cole has amazing flight instincts. He is going to get out of there. Michael Cole knows when to hold him and knows when to fold him. And it was time to fold him. Goodbye. Corey Graves almost got his head caved in by a baseball bat. And here comes retribution. They come in. They uh, push over a couple camera guys. The camera guys all skedaddle. They use the... Uh, uh, wall-mounted and hard cams that don't have a camera operator, and they zoom in and out like crazy and do quick cuts, which some people hated. I really didn't mind, um, you know, to display the chaos, but some people hated it. People always, I mean, people don't like all the quick cuts that WWE does sometimes, but, you know, I notice them now because I'm like, oh, people are going to hate this, but it doesn't really bother me. But I'm a shill, so what do I know? Um... They uh, beat up a couple people in the audience, spray-painted the uh, plexiglass the WWE puts up to protect everybody, and then they used a chainsaw to cut the ropes. Uh, they're also, uh, we don't know much about them. Um, not big. Not big people. Not one big person in that group. That's how I knew they weren't Tazawa's ninjas, because the big ninja wasn't there. Big Ninja's busy guarding Shane McMahon's door. We'll get into that in a minute. But, yeah, so uh, uh, not very big. And I'll get, I, I have a theory about that myself. I think I know where to go with this. Here's the positives. People are talking about it. And I am a big proponent of step one is get people talking. I don't think retribution... We're not in a pass-fail point yet. You can't say retribution is a failure yet because we don't know where it's going, and people are genuinely interested in where it's going. People are going to watch Raw hoping to find out that there's more answers about retribution. Some people are genu genuinely curious. Some people like the angle, and other people hate it and go like, this is nonsense. I want to see how they justify it. But either way, if people hate him, why are they listening? 
Number one answer given. I want to hear what he'll say next. People will watch. And getting people talking is step one. And step one's been a success. People are talking. Um, I think that's good. I think it's something new. It's something different. I think that's good. There were comparisons made to the NWO, of course, with the spray paint. There were many comparisons made to the Nexus with the destruction. Was nowhere near as good as the NWO or the Nexus. Both of those felt real. This didn't feel real. It felt like a story. Didn't feel like a, a like it could be a good story, but it felt like it did not feel like you were watching something where anybody was in actual danger. Not that like we all know that nobody's in real danger, but like the Nexus thing, it felt real. You could suspend disbelief. When the Nexus came in and they tore up the ring, they tore up the ring like a bunch of ex-wrestlers would. They beat up the ring announcer like ex-wrestlers would. Like it seemed real. NWO coming in, it felt like there was an actual invasion happening. This felt like a storyline, which I, it doesn't deter me because I'm okay with that. But it's just it's it's just to me it's 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 not in the same conversation as NWO or Nexus. But keep in mind, Nexus had this great opening segment, and then I mean, just completely waffled. Nexus ended up being terrible. So just because it worked in the opening segment doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so vice versa, meaning just because I don't think that Retribution's opening angle was as good as Nexus's opening angle doesn't mean Retribution can't be even better. This is what I think we need to do with Retribution. Watching it, you know, they made it clear that when the female fan, quote unquote, trainee was getting beaten up in the audience, she was getting beaten up by a female member of retribution. It was very, very clear. This was not man-on-woman violence. This was woman-on-woman violence. I think that was done intentionally. You know, you could tell in the body types. You could tell in the movements. At one point, the hood came down. You saw all the hair. You were like, okay, I know it's it's a, it's a woman. So, you, And I think that, that was designed so that we felt a little bit more comfortable with it. And I think that that's the right thing to do if that's the direction you're going to go in with it. But that got me to thinking. I'm like, okay, we know at least one, say, we know that she's a woman. We also know that nobody there is particularly big. They're not, nobody is the, a big brooding person. It didn't look like anybody was over six feet tall, to tell you the truth. My first thought was, what if this is an entirely female faction? And then I rewatched it and I was like, okay, well, it couldn't be entirely female because one of the people talking clearly had a male voice like the one that was talking directly into camera, that sounded like a dude. You could cover it up later. They left their masks on. You could change that. But I think that retribution needs to be either an all-female or a female-led group. I think even if you've got mainly like four women and two guys in it, and the two guys are just kind of, you know, not high-ranking members of retribution— I think that this needs to be a female-centric group. There is something so cool about the idea of the people that all these men were running away from, 
and the people that the roster was afraid to approach in the ring, that they're powerful women under that mask, I think that that's super cool, and I think it's a good message. I think it's a step in the right direction. It's progress, if you will. Um, I also think that you're talking about retribution. That name is important. The motive is important. Who would be looking for retribution? And you're like, well, I mean, it could be a bunch of the guys that just got fired, right? But realistically, they're all signed up now. Woo-woo-woo's on AEW. I think almost everybody else is on Impact. Rusev is on Twitch. You know, I mean, they're all uh, they're all spoken for. So it can't be that. Drake Maverick's already back. I mean, I guess it could be Leo Rush, but other than that, so I'm thinking, like, who could it be? Who who Who's looking for retribution? And the answer is the women that weren't represented in the women's evolution. I mean, what if Carmella, Naomi, Dana Brooke, what if these women who have become on the roster tier two women, which... I don't think it's justified in a lot of cases, but it just is what it is. Let's be honest. Naomi is nowhere near the women's champ title picture. Dana Brooke, nowhere near. Carmella, I don't even know if she's on TV anymore. Like, these are women who are not being focused on. The focus of the women's division, Becky and Charlotte, who aren't on the show, Sasha and Bailey, Lacey, you know, Riot Squad. I think you could put Natty Neidhart in Retribution. Maybe even Lana in Retribution. I think if you made this, and they were also wearing sweatshirts. They were in baggy sweatshirts. So you couldn't tell the body types of any of the people under the masks. I think Retribution should be a primarily female faction looking for revenge on WWE, on the women's division for ignoring them. I think that that would be the most interesting thing that WWE could do with Retribution. I think it would be unexpected. I think it would be of the time. I think it would be representative of a big portion of the audience. And I think that it would be something to fill out the women's division so it's not just title matches all the time. I love the idea of, of a, it's almost like a women's New World Order where they're coming in, but what if the women are also interfering in the men's matches and going like, you shouldn't be the main event. We're better than you. You know, if you've got Naomi saying, hey, you male superstar, whoever you are, you don't deserve to be in the main event. I'm a better athlete than you. I'm a better performer than you. I'm the one who should be in this match. You're taking my time away. I love that story. That's a story I can get behind. I was sitting there going, how does retribution work in my head? And to me, that's how retribution works. Making it about the women and the women coming in and just running roughshod over WWE. Works for me. I'm interested to hear what you think. My email is notsamwrestling at gmail.com. So... If you've got thoughts, 
feel free to send them my way. Um, moving on to uh, NXT. NXT this week closed with a huge angle. The payoff on all the Pat McAfee stuff uh, went down on NXT. So it starts with, of course, uh, Adam Cole and Pat McAfee on Pat McAfee's radio show. Pat McAfee is taking shots at Adam Cole. Adam Cole curses him out, shoves his employee. Adam Cole and Pat McAfee have had years of little shots being taken by Pat towards Adam, being small, etc. Not being able to do things on his own, etc. Triple H comes on Pat McAfee's show. Triple H says, you guys need to talk this out. Pat McAfee on Wednesday afternoon says that he's left his honeymoon, that he was shoot on a honeymoon last week. He said he left his honeymoon for a day to come to Orlando and talk to Adam Cole. And uh, he posts pictures with Adam Cole. The two of them are getting along. Pat McAfee goes on commentary. And I heard criticism that they spent all the time with Pat McAfee on commentary just talking about Pat and Adam Cole. And it's like, yeah, of course they did. Like, I understand there were other matches. Like, there was the women's match going on, and then there was the tag team match with the Undisputed Era. But at the end of the day, that TV time was being used to tell the story of Pat McAfee and Adam Cole for everybody that hadn't seen the Pat McAfee-Adam Cole radio segment. Like, it's 101. It's, I mean, of course that's what they were doing. They're trying to set up a big match for TakeOver. You got three weeks before TakeOver. Yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time on commentary building this thing, especially with Pat McAfee, who's been on kickoff shows with me, but he's not on NXT TV. So that didn't bother me at all. Watch the segment go down. Pat is uh, taking shots. at Adam Cole comes out to ringside with uh, the Undisputed Era, with Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly. Um. He's real close to Pat McAfee, who's sitting at the desk with old Tommy Phillips. And uh, Pat McAfee is taking shots at Adam Cole the entire time. Morrow says, that's not cool, Pat. Pat goes, oh, I don't know. Beth decides it's so disrespectful she doesn't want to be on commentary with him anymore. Which, trust me, if anybody understands not wanting to broadcast with Pat McAfee, it's me. So I don't blame Beth for that. But we do end up differing when it comes to what happened after. So Adam Cole and Pat McAfee are arguing. Adam Cole throws water in Pat McAfee's face. Pat McAfee steps to him. I looked at Pat McAfee's face and Pat McAfee went from goofy, I'm not on the pre-show, I make fun of people, Pat McAfee, to hey, I was punter of the decade in the NFL, kicker of the decade, and also I'll fight anyone in a bar, Pat McAfee. I've seen that guy. I knew plenty of guys who were a blast to hang out with, and then you say the wrong thing to them, and they will cave your face in. And that's the Pat McAfee that I saw. Pat is being walked off by Drake. He goes, you know what? Never mind. And he walks back over, and he tells Adam Cole, He's a short little bitch. Adam Cole tries to get Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee responds by punting him in the head and knocking him out Cole. A lot of things have been said on social media. Beth Phoenix has said that Pat McAfee was disrespectful to wrestling. Adam Cole has said he is going to run out Pat McAfee. Adam Cole has said 
look, Beth Phoenix said that Pat McAfee was disrespectful to wrestling. Adam Cole has said he's going to run Pat McAfee out of wrestling. He called Pat McAfee an outsider and said he disrespected him, and now he's, he's going to throw him out of the industry. They're basically trying to paint Pat McAfee like he's one of these reporters trying to expose pro wrestling or one of these guys taking the piss out of pro wrestling that needs to be taught a wrestling, uh, needs to be taught a lesson. Here's my problem with that. Adam Cole said to Pat McAfee, hey, Pat, you run your mouth. Why don't you do something about it? And then Pat McAfee kicked Adam Cole's head off his shoulders and left him unconscious. If you tell a guy, don't disrespect the wrestling business, and then that guy knocks you out cold, he's you've embarrassed yourself. To me, Adam Cole was embarrassed by Pat McAfee on NXT TV. And I don't think that anybody can tell Pat McAfee that he doesn't belong in the wrestling business when he took one of the top guys on NXT and left him out cold. To me, I feel like maybe I and a whole bunch of other people have underestimated Pat McAfee because not that many people have left Adam Cole unconscious and Pat McAfee is one of them, okay? If I'm being disrespectful to pro wrestling, somebody could come and pretty easily shut me up. Adam Cole tried to shut up Pat McAfee and Pat McAfee kicked his head off his shoulders. At that point, Adam Cole no longer has a leg to stand on when it comes to shutting up Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee won that debate. And Triple H can shove Pat out of the building all he wants to. But Adam Cole said, hey, Pat McAfee, why don't you back up your words? And Pat McAfee's like, okay, why don't I leave you out cold? And he did it. I love the story. I love the story going in. This is a story, they, they haven't told this story this way before. You know, they, they usually, I mean, it's a typical story. The outsider disrespects wrestling, the wrestler teaches him a lesson. But what happens when the wrestler gets knocked on his ass? Then who's teaching who a lesson? That's why takeover should be good. That's why I think it was so well done because it was different and it felt real and felt real life when it was happening. I thought it was great. So speaking of, uh, of, of feeling real, let's talk about raw. Of course, raw is on tonight. And I think the thing that is keeping people tuned into raw is not only, you know, I think that, uh, uh, retribution is going to help because people are interested in where that's going. But I think that Raw Underground is the same way. There were a couple of things real quick that I want to talk about from Raw last week. I thought the Drew McIntyre-Randy Orton promo was to die for. thought it was great. Um, you know, I don't Montez Ford being poisoned. I don't know if somebody slipped rice in, in his uh, coffee. Bianca Belair jumped uh, Zelina Vega on her Twitch stream, which made me change my locks on my door for sure. Um, so, I mean, it is what it is. I thought it was a weirdly done thing, but I don't know, whatever it takes to add some spice to the Street Profits, uh, 
Andrade Angel match. I'm not mad at it. And the Pat Buck versus Nia Jax segment, I was so happy. I'm probably very biased because I like Pat Buck so much. I badly want to see Pat Buck versus Nia Jax as a match at SummerSlam. You talk to your congressman. Call whoever you need to call to try to make that happen. But I think Nia Jax versus Pat Buck absolutely has to happen at SummerSlam. I think it'd be great. I think Pat Buck deserves the shot. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Watching Raw and seeing Pat Buck's name over and over again, mentioning it on the Chiron, Nia calling him Pat Buck, the whole thing. It's like Pat, he's a character now. He's a character. Oh, and the other segment that was amazing was Samoa Joe standing up to Seth Rollins. Samoa Joe just does so good in every role that he plays. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I want to hear Samoa Joe on the call as Nia Jack take Nia Jax takes on Pat Buck at SummerSlam. That's my goal. That's what I want to see. But let's talk about Raw Underground. Raw Underground, one of the most controversial additions to Monday Night Raw last week. We found out Shane McMahon was going to be back. He unleashes this strange concept called Raw Underground. It's like uh, basically Fight Club in WWE. Um, People came in very pessimistically, I will say that, about this. Uh, People were worried it was going to be a brawl-for-all thing with shoot fighting. It isn't. You know, clearly this is uh, part of the show. Which is why I think people were just ready for criticism for it because one of the criticisms that I'd read about it was, well, if Raw Underground is supposed to be real, does that make the rest of the show fake? But that distinction wasn't made. I think that that criticism was ready if they were going to bring back Brawl for All because that's a fair criticism of Brawl for All. But I don't think that's a fair criticism of Raw Underground. Raw Underground is clearly a different style of fighting. That's all there is. So I, I don't think that Raw Underground takes away from the uh, any sort of reality of the main card. Uh, but, you know, I was fairly skeptical of it, too when it started, because I'm watching it, and I'm like, this is really weird. You know, they start out with the new guy, the big giant guy, he squashes a guy, and then he wins, and Shane McMahon goes, that's it, that's it. But here's my thing with Raw Underground, and why, I'm not sure, but I think this thing could work. Maybe I'm just being optimistic, but I think this Raw Underground thing could work. Because really, I looked at what was the what was the sum of all the parts. The parts in and of themselves, whatever. I thought the last segment was actually very good. I thought once the Hurt Business came in, I was pretty interested in what was happening. You know, you had Bobby Lashley, who's a legit MMA guy. You have Shelton Benjamin, who's a legit wrestling guy. You have MVP, who studied judo and can legit fight you. So... Although, you know, I I wouldn't mind if MVP was less involved physically and more just involved verbally. But I guess if he can go, he can go. So I I thought that that part was very good. Uh, I thought the way they ended it was very good. I thought it gives um, the Hurt Business a spot on the show where even though they're not holding the WWE Championship, they're still in very high regard. Uh, And that is what, to me, made me start to add up all the parts. Because while none of the segments except for that one were super like, oh my God, this is amazing. It was more like, what is this? This is really weird. When I really looked at it, I was like, okay. They used the first segment to get over a new guy. I'm interested in that new guy. 
I'd like to see that new guy fight more. I like how he's, he's super big. I believe that he's a tough guy. The battle of the tough guys. Good job, right? I think it was Eric. It's either Eric or Ivar, but one of the Viking Raiders was the second segment. And in that segment, I got reminded, oh, yeah, the Viking Raiders are badass dudes. We've watched the Viking Raiders be cartoon characters for so long. We haven't been scared of them at all. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. The Viking Raiders are badass dudes. And that's what was demonstrated in this segment. Then Dolph Ziggler comes on. And you see Dolph Ziggler wrestling, and it gives the uh, opportunity for the commentator, for Tom Phillips, to bring up the fact that uh, he wrestled at Kent State, one of the top wrestlers in the country. And it's not just like, when you're in a traditional wrestling match, uh, WWE wrestling match, and you know one of the commentators brings that up about Dolph Ziggler, you're kind of like, okay, if you say so, but what I see is a guy with bleach blonde hair and shiny pants. You know, I see a character. I don't see a guy from Kent State. But all of a sudden... When you're doing fight club rules where you're actually using some of that wrestling, you're like, oh, he's a badass. He was a wrestler at Kent State, one of the top wrestlers at Kent State. He's a badass. And then the Hurt Business come in, and immediately you're going, I know exactly where this needs to go. I mean, can you imagine after several weeks of the Hurt Business just taking out everybody? Brock Lesnar stepping up to Bobby Lashley in the Raw Underground? You wouldn't be interested in that? People have been asking for a Brock Lesnar-Bobby Lashley match forever. This is it. This is the venue for it. I mean, I think it's a no-brainer. And, and, you're going down the list. In one night, we've put over a new guy. We've reminded you that the Vikings are badasses that Dolph Ziggler is a legit tough guy wrestler, and the Hurt Business ain't nothing to screw with. And that was because of the venue that they were all in. So I think that ultimately, the Raw Underground cannot simply just be, hey, here's the Raw Underground. I don't think anybody's going to care about the Raw Underground just in and of itself. You know, I don't, I don't think that the draw is, hey, everybody tune in, the Raw Underground is on. But I think that the Raw Underground can be used for specific purposes for different superstars. I think that the Raw Underground can be used as a place for Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar to have a fight. I think that the Raw Underground can be used as a reminder that guys like Shelton Benjamin and Dolph Ziggler can wrestle their asses off. To remind you that the Vikings are actually badass dudes. You know, there's a lot of people that you could get in to the Raw Underground and all of a sudden you're allowed to look at them differently. And then they can leave the Raw Underground and still be that badass person in the ring. But the Raw Underground has provided the venue to where you can organically expose the audience to this other side of this character who might be a little bit stale. Let's be honest. You know, what are you getting? Are you going through the roof when Dolph Ziggler comes out? No. Do you know he's going to have a great match? Yes. But he's been around forever. Do you know which way is up with the Vikings? No. But there's now a reason for them to be badasses. If they just show up in the ring and start being badasses again, you're like, why? Like you were fighting garbage monsters two weeks ago. Why are you all of a sudden a badass now? But in the Raw Underground, you can't fight a garbage monster. So, boom, 
There you go. That is my positive take on the Raw Underground. Everybody that won their matches in the Raw Underground, I believe, potentially benefited from that. Who knows if it'll go anywhere, but in that moment, they all benefited from the moments and, and, and were given material that that can be used going forward. And I think that you can absolutely do that going forward with the Raw Underground, you know? I think that that has to be a spot where people meet, maybe going forward, like a, a story builds up on TV and they go, screw this, let's do this in the Raw Underground. And, you know, I, I, I think it could be an interesting and unique setting. Uh, I think that now is the perfect time to do it because it certainly beats an empty arena. And I, I, I just think that there's, there, there's room in there. There's room to play with, and hopefully we do. I thank you all for playing with me today and being a part of Not Sam Wrestling. Don't forget to get on that Patreon page, patreon.com slash notsamwrestling, if you want to hear another Not Sam Wrestling show on Thursday. If not, I'll see you on Monday. Next Monday, that is. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Follow at Not Sam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.